the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Before an Israelite could come to worship the Lord, before you could walk in and go to that altar, the sin issue had to be taken care of. And you know what? It's the same for every human being today. There's the promise of redemption in the fillets and the sockets of silver, but until you actually dealt with the sin, redemption could not take place. And it's the same for every human being today. Before worship can even be possible, I must change my attitude toward my sin. I must repent. And if I do, I can come in faith to the altar and seek forgiveness in Christ's offering on my behalf. He sees the dust and knows my frame. Through Christ being beaten, the olive oil can come. The Spirit of God is able to come to us that we might truly be lights to a dark and dying world. He tabernacles. That's what Jesus came to do. He tabernacled amongst us. He lived in our midst so we could see him exactly what he was like. Not the shadow, but the substance. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. I'm your host, Nate Elliott, as we join Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Exodus. God had liberated the Israelites from their enslavement in Egypt, bringing them through the desert wilderness out to Mount Sinai. God had revealed attributes of His holiness and goodness to the Israelites through the giving of His moral law. He gave the civil law by which they were to abide by. Now God will give them the ceremonial law, instructions on how to worship Him. We have been looking at the intricacies of the tabernacle God instructed the Israelites to build and how all of it points to Jesus. We will see the altar of burnt offerings now as we join Pastor Will in Exodus chapter 27, verse 1. Well, chapter 27 of Exodus, we now move on to the brass altar. So the altar of burnt offering is what I'm referring to when I mention the brass altar here. We see here, and you shall make an altar of shittim wood, five cubits long, five cubits broad. The altar shall be four square, and the height thereof shall be three cubits. So it was seven and a half feet square and a little over four feet high. It was actually, it's kind of a funny looking thing. It's more tall than big. I would expect an altar would have more space, especially when you have two million people who are sinners who need to bring offerings. It doesn't look like you can do a whole lot of barbecuing on that thing. But that's how it was. Leviticus calls it the altar of burnt offering. This was the only place that offerings could be consumed, whether it was animal, plant, or baked goods. Whatever offering you brought, it had to be consumed on this altar to the Lord. And it mentions here in verse 2, you should make the horns of it upon the four corners thereof. As you can see the horns there, that's where they would strap various pieces of the animal as they would do the carving work and whatnot. Uh, Because priests would eat some of it, depending upon the offering, the offerer might eat some. And then, of course, some would stay on the altar and be consumed there because it was symbolic of the Lord eating it. You're fellowshipping with the Lord. 
His horn shall be of the same, and you shall overlay it with brass. And you shall make his pans to receive his ashes, and his shovels, and in his basins, and his flesh hooks. You know, I always love the King James for like flesh hooks. It sounds like, you know, it sounds like a horror movie. But the idea behind the flesh hooks, it just means forks. The idea you're going to, you know, be able to, to get the meat. They didn't, probably didn't have tongs, I guess. And his fire pans, all the vessels thereof shall be made of brass. So all the tools that you would use to work with the meat would be made of brass. And verse four, he shall make for it a grate of network of brass. And upon the net, uh, the net just means the, the, is the grate. And uh, uh, similar to the modern grill with the crisscrossing metalwork to barbecue, that's all that means. You shall make for it a grate of network of brass. And upon the net shall you make four brazen rings in the four corners thereof. That's what the grate would you know, sit upon. And if you have a grill, you have probably something similar that the, the grate rests upon. Verse 5, and you shall put it under the compass of the altar beneath. The word compass just means the rim or the edge of the altar. So in other words, it'd be sunken. You can see how the grate is sunken a little bit in there. So that's what this means here when it talks about putting it under the, the border, the rim, the edge, the compass of the altar beneath, that the net may be even to the middle of the altar. So that's not an exact perfect replica. And you shall make staves for the altar, staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with brass. And the staves shall be put into the rings, and the staves shall be upon the two sides of the altar to bear it or carry it. Hollow with board shall you make it, so inside it's not solid, it's to be hollow. As it was showed you in the mount, so shall they make it. There was only one place to worship God. There was only one place to fix the sin problem, and it was this altar. Israel would frequently compromise this particular rule. They would frequently compromise this truth because, as you can imagine, if you lived very far from the tabernacle, it would be easier to build your own altar or visit one of the local high places to bring your sacrifices. In fact, when we get to the history of Israel and the kings and the judges, that'll be a common theme where it'll mention this king was a good king because he took away the high places. A lot of times we think of the high places and we think, Oh, good, he took away those pagan altars. 90% of the time, they weren't pagan altars. They were actually altars to him. But the Lord was saying, you've put the altar in the wrong place. It's not my altar. Now, that's fascinating because when you think of worship, there's a lot of times <laughs> I see people say, well, I'm going to worship God how I want. You know? and, and, you know, and even you hear unbelievers say, well, I worship God my way. No, that's a high place. <laughs> you know? We can't have those things in our lives. God determines the way that we worship him, and there's one place where sin can be dealt with. So can you guess maybe a little bit what this might be pointing forward to, to Jesus? John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. If you wanted to get to the Lord, you know, you would have to go to this altar. That's the only place you could restore fellowship with God. That's the only place that the priest could take the blood of the offering and bring it inside and have it be acceptable to God, and thereby you could be restored in your relationship with God once again. Mankind is always trying to find his own way of serving God, his own way of worshiping a God, his own way of pleasing God. But there's only one way. It's through the cross. There's only one way to worship God, through his word. And there's only one way to please God, by worshiping him in spirit and in truth. Now, notice also the change from beautiful gold to now a faded brass. Sin is what breaks fellowship with God. And brass is used frequently in the Bible to refer to judgment. 
This speaks of how it took a heavy sacrifice to pay for our sin. When we see the image of Jesus, the John in Revelation chapter 1 sees, well, let's just turn there. Remember, John had never seen Jesus this way, so it was a little overwhelming. But he heard a voice speaking to him, saying, I am Alpha and Omega. And when he turned to see that voice, Revelation 1 verse 13. The first thing he saw was seven golden menorah or candlesticks, lampstands. They were symbolic of the seven churches he's writing this letter to. And in the midst of those seven lampstands, in other words, in the midst of these seven churches, he saw one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. He had a, basically a golden belt or sash on him. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, similar to what Daniel saw his vision of the Lord. Verse 15, here it is. And his feet were like unto fine brass as if they burned in a furnace. Now that's a little ominous, okay? I mean, granted, I'm not skittish. I wouldn't call myself the bravest person in the world. But if I see someone with eyes of fire and he's got, there's something a little bit more ominous about flaming white, I mean, bright white hair. And he's got flaming eyes and he's got a, a white robe and a sat, girdle sash, but then his legs, you can see them and they're heated up where they're like glowing, like brass that's been in the fire. That's a little ominous. And when Jesus refers to his legs of brass, it's to one of the churches that are experiencing judgment. So brass is frequently used of judgment. When we get here now and we see the idea of this brass altar, it was to conjure up the idea of judgment. It was to speak of how it took a heavy sacrifice to pay for our sin. See, Jesus bore the wrath of God heated to the hottest. Heated, when you see, when you heat brass, it glows and he bore the whole wrath of God in order that we wouldn't have to. So when we worship God, it needs to be done in obedience, not my way. My way isn't truly worship because I haven't bent the knee. In fact, the word worship, it, it means that. It's proskianu, it means to kiss toward. And the idea is of putting your face on the ground and kissing the ground, the idea is doing obeisance before God. It speaks of intimacy, but it also speaks of obeisance. And so the idea is that of bending the knee. And you know, doesn't the one who bore all, our, all that wrath for us deserve our obedience? He sure does. Well, now in verse 9, chapter 27, we get to the courtyard. In verse 9, and you shall make the court of the tabernacle, or the outer open area. So this is now the outside area. You see the brass altar there. Now, you've probably noticed a couple other things. You may, what's that? What's the golden altar? We'll get to that later. What's the brass laver? That was just a big tub for the priests to wash their, their hands. We'll get to that later, too. But now he's going to say, well, how are you going to make this court? So we're going to talk about all the borders of the court now. So in verse 9, and you shall make the outer open area of the tabernacle. And for the south side, southward, there shall be hangings or just drapery screens for the court of fine twine linen of a hundred cubits long for one side. And 20 pillars thereof, and their 20 sockets shall be of brass. And the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. Now, the way this works is the south and the north side would be about 150 feet long. Now, I don't know if you can see this, but up in the top, you can see how the court would compare to an American football field, okay? I'm American, so that's the only football I know, but I'll do that just for any of you Europeans out there. But it was big, but not quite as big as a football field, about two-fifths the size of a football field. So this thing was quite large, and these draperies would hang from wooden columns. We'll read about that. Let's, let's just keep reading. And likewise, for the north side in length shall there be hangings of 100 cubits long, verse 11, and his 20 pillars, and there are 20 sockets of brass, and the hooks of the pillars and their fillets of silver. 
And for the breadth of the court on the west side shall be hangings of 50 cubits, their pillars 10 and their sockets 10. These pillars, they're a little bit different. As you notice, they kind of need to stand on their own because there's not frames for this. It's just pillars and then you hang curtains from the pillars. So they have to be a little bit more sturdy. So this is how the top worked. They would have these sockets in the top. The middle piece is what they call the fillet. So I don't know where the King James came up with these words, but that's what that is. So it's similar to like, again, Legos. They would snap in a piece and it would provide a, a sturdy base so that you could hang these drape, uh, draped curtains on top of it. So they would hang from wooden columns that were equidistantly placed around the perimeter, and the columns would be settled into fillets, which were Lego-like joints to keep the columns stable on the ground. The west and the east side, the east side would be the entrance. So the east side is where you see the entrance curtain here, and then the west side would be closed. That would be shorter. That would only be about 75 feet long. And so like I said, the total area would be about two-fifths of an American football field. Now, when we get to verse 14, he says the hangings of the one side of the gate, he's talking about the the entrance now, the word gate means entrance, shall be 15 cubits, their pillars three and their sockets three. On the other side shall be their hangings, 15 cubits, so exactly the same, their pillars three and their sockets three. So if you've got 75 feet and these things take up about 22 and a half feet on each side, that leaves you an open section in the middle. And so verse 16 tells us about that. And for the gate, the opening of the court, shall be a hanging of 20 cubits of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twined linen, wrought with needlework, and their pillars shall be four and their sockets four. All the pillars round about the court shall be filleted with silver, their hooks shall be of silver, and their sockets of brass. And the length of the court shall be 100 cubits, and the breadth 50 cubits everywhere, and the height five cubits of fine twined linen, and their sockets of brass. And all the vessels of the tabernacle, and all the service thereof, and all the pins thereof, and all the pins of the court shall be of brass. So the pins would be, see how the curtains, they're kind of tied down through those, they're, they're almost like building the tent. They're like stakes that would go on the ground. Now, if you're a Jew coming to worship the Lord at the gate, you would see a very ornate curtain. It mentions it's of different colors. The east side would have an opening in the middle about 30 feet long, and that would be signified by another ornate curtain made like the one inside the tabernacle, except no cherubims. But again, notice there's brass everywhere. The tent pegs are made of brass. The fillets are are made of silver, but the posts are made of brass. If you walk up, all you see is what? Judgment and then a little smidgen of redemption. I said, notice all the brass everywhere. The message was simple. Stay out because God will judge you unless you deal with your sin. Before an Israelite could come to worship the Lord, before you could walk in and go to that altar, the sin issue had to be taken care of. And you know what? It's the same for every human being today. There's the promise of redemption in the fillets and the sockets of silver, but until you actually dealt with the sin, redemption could not take place. And so brass would be what you would see. And it's the same for every human being today. Before worship can even be possible, I must change my attitude toward my sin. I must repent. And if I do, I can come in faith to the altar and seek forgiveness in Christ's offering on my behalf. Pretty cool, huh? Well, the last part here of 27, it says, And you shall command the children of Israel that they bring you pure oil olive beaten for the light to cause the lamp to burn always. In the tabernacle of the congregation, outside the veil, which is before the testimony. He's talking about the holy place here. So outside the veil that's of the most holy place is the holy place. 
So the oil would be used there for the menorah, the, uh, the golden lampstand. So in the tabernacle of the congregation, without the veil, that's the inner veil, which is before the testimony, referring, that's another name for the ark. Aaron and his sons, they shall order it or prepare it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever unto their generations on the behalf of the children of Israel. So again, this refers us back to the golden lampstand. And the oil would bring the light which reminded them of God's perfection and their responsibility to shine as God's people to a dark world. Well, how does this point to Jesus, the oil that's in for the lamp? Well, turn to Revelation chapter 4, verse 5. Remember, there's the shadow of these things in the tabernacle. They point to a substance. John has a vision of the throne room of heaven. Let's just read the whole thing. Verse 1. And after this I looked, and behold, a door is open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up here, and I will show you the things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne, in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were twenty-four seats. And upon those seats I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And here we are. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the what? The seven spirits of God. That in and of itself is its own Bible study. What are the seven spirits of God? Well, turn to Isaiah with me. I'm not going to give you all the answers, but maybe I'll whet your appetites for some personal study. Chapter 11, prophecy of the Messiah coming. Verse 1, and they shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall go out of his roots. And the spirit of the Lord, number one, shall rest upon them. The spirit of wisdom, number two, and understanding, number three. Spirit of counsel, number four. Might, number five. The spirit of knowledge, number six, and of the fear of the Lord, seven. That is a sevenfold working of God's spirit, all of which the oil points See, those seven lamps on the candlestick represent the ministry of God's spirit because he's the one who shines through us to a dark world. Isn't that cool? And how did God's spirit come to us? Well, notice if you read there, it mentions they would have to beat the oil. It uses the exact word beaten. It says they would beat the olive to get the oil out of it. And what happened to Jesus? See, through Christ being beaten and dying for us and then rising again and ascending to heaven, according to John 16, something happened. Look at John 16 with me, verses seven and eight. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient or necessary for you that I go away. For if I go not away, then the comforter will not come unto you. That's the Holy Spirit. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove or convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Through Christ being beaten, the olive oil can come. The Spirit of God is able to come to us that we might truly be lights to a dark and dying world. Cool stuff, huh? And you know, part of the priest's job was to tend the lampstand every day to ensure that those lights never went out. Now, what's fascinating, how many of you guys have heard of Hanukkah, right? That's a feast of lights. There are seven feasts that the Bible tells us that, we, that the Jews were to celebrate. There's two extra feasts that most, or at least Orthodox, most faithful Jews that follow their own faith, they celebrate. And that's the Feast of Purim, which is to celebrate what God did through Esther. And then it's the Feast of Lights or Hanukkah. It's actually mentioned in the New Testament, Jesus celebrated Hanukkah. Well, the Feast of Lights is about a time that's not mentioned in the Bible. It was a time when a tyrant named Antiochus Epiphanes came into Israel. He was the ruler over the area. And when Antiochus Epiphanes came in, he actually went, told the Jews, he said, you can't circumcise your kids. We'll kill you if you do. You can't read the scriptures. 
scriptures. He burned all the scriptures. And, and he told them, he said, you can't worship the Lord. And to do that, to enforce that, he actually went into the Holy of Holies. Sorry, before that, he sacrificed a pig on the brass altar, took it into the Holy of Holies, and then set up an image of Zeus in the Holy of Holies. As you can imagine, that defiled the temple. And the priests could not go into the temple until it had been cleansed, which takes seven days. Well, during those seven days, there was no priest there to minister to the lamp to make sure the lights didn't go out. Well, seven days later, after they went through the cleansing process, when they went inside the temple, guess what? The lights were supernaturally kept lit. Isn't that cool? That's what Hanukkah's about. So, kind of neat. Their job was to tend the lampstand to ensure the lights didn't go out. And that would mean they would work in the holy place a lot, which is a really good segue into chapter 28, which begins the instructions for the priest garments and the preparation for their service, which we will get into next time. As we look through this, the start, I mean, we just recovered most of the pieces of the tabernacle. We're going to get into a lot more. In addition to teaching us about worship, I think this also shows us God's longing to meet with us right? He tabernacles. That's what Jesus came to do. He tabernacled amongst us. He lived in our midst so we could see him exactly what he was like. Not the shadow, but the substance. And now he lives inside of our hearts and we are the temple of the Lord. He tabernacles in the midst of our praises so that we can know him better. And thus, not only does worship include us ministering to God, but it also includes God ministering to us. And so when you come to worship the Lord through the time in our word, we worship him in the word, we worship him in song, we worship him through prayer afterwards, we worship him through fellowship. Not only are we blessing his heart, but our heart's desire is that he would bless our heart as well. And when we gather on Wednesday, I want to encourage you to come to night of prayer. That's what our focus is. We want to bless the Lord, and then our heart is, Lord, we would love for you to bless us in return as well. Because that's his desire. It's not that we're there because, oh, we're going to twist God's arm and make him bless us because we're doing all sorts of spiritual things. He longs to bless us. I think God longs to bless us more than we want to be blessed. And so our desire is when we come is to receive from the Lord. We should come expecting that we'll receive from the Lord because he loves to dwell in our midst. Amen? Let's all stand. You join me in prayer as the worship team comes forward to close us out. Oh Lord, how cool that you set all these pictures in place in the Old Testament. That all these things, I, I, I wonder what it was like, Lord, to be a, a Jew living in Jesus' day, a devout one who, who loved you and probably saw bits and pieces as Jesus would say phrases or, or that he would do things a certain way and it had to bring to their recollection how you instructed them to do all these things as a pattern, Lord, as a, a sign of things to come, a shadow of the substance of your son. Lord, we're so great that we don't have to be guessing or we don't have to be looking forward to it because you have come. And now we look back to your finished work on the cross, which has made this relationship possible. Lord, thank you for, for being, you know, the sockets of our frame, Lord. We as your temple, we can know that we're steadfastly redeemed in you. We don't ever have to fear being kicked out of your kingdom, Lord. We thank you that you, who are our brass altar, the sacrifice that we can come to God through and we never, ever have to go away. Lord, we thank you that you've torn the veil and we can enter in, not just part way, but all the way into a deep relationship with you. That we don't have to stay outside where there's judgment, but when we've come to you in faith, we can come all the way. Thank you for such wonderful redemption, Lord. Thank you for such sweet forgiveness. Help us as now as we sing to worship you with all of our hearts in thankfulness for all you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. The tabernacle and all the beautifully crafted objects in it were just a shadow of the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is our redemption, our way to go to God. Whereas there was a giant veil blocking people from entering into God's presence, we can come boldly to God's throne room 
and not be turned away because Jesus washed us clean in His blood, satisfying the righteous wrath of God. No longer do we have to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice to come worship God. Jesus completed His work and gave us access to God the Father. How amazing! How thankful we can be to Jesus for all He has done for us. While we are in this time of a global pandemic, do not be afraid to call and ask for assistance or for prayer. Our office may be closed, but you can still reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.